Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Today's episode features a discussion between Mackenzie Walk and Lauren Fournier on the topic of auto-theory as feminist practice. Auto-theory refers to a wide range of literature, philosophy and art-making practices that dispose with the separation of the theoretical and the autobiographical. Today's speakers will be exploring exactly what this means in regards to their own work and interests. Mackenzie Walker is a public intellectual, writer and philosopher. She's the author of many books including A Hacker Manifesto, Gamer Theory and Capital is Dead, amongst others. Her most recent book, Reverse Cowgirl, was published in February of this year by Semiotext and is perhaps her most overtly auto-theoretical work in which the author moves between different modes and genres to create a writing practice that expresses life outside existing accounts of trans experience. Mackenzie will be in discussion with Lauren Fournier. Lauren is a writer, curator, video artist and filmmaker based in Toronto. She teaches at the University of Toronto, York University's Department of English and Ryerson University's School of Image Arts. Her forthcoming book, Auto Theory as Feminist Practice in Art, Writing and Criticism, publishes in February with the MIT Press. If you enjoy the following discussion, we'll be publishing an extended version next week, as well as an edited transcript of the conversation on the MIT Press website. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want to stay up to date with all of our content, and feel free to get in touch if you have any questions about anything discussed by emailing info at mitpress.org.uk. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider heading over to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star review. It helps us reach a larger audience and in turn allows us to produce more of these discussions. So without further ado, I'll pass over to Mackenzie and Lauren. Yeah, I mean, I think auto theory, I when people ask me what it is, one of the answers I give is like, I don't know, that's why I wrote this book. I feel like it was a term that was trending a lot around certain texts that were coming out around the 2010s, 2015, like really started to take off. Um, and it was being used, but people weren't necessarily sure what exactly it meant. Auto theory, most simply the bridging of autobiography embodied subjective modes with theory as a discourse, as a framework, um, as, as a mode of practice of, of theorizing and philosophizing. So one way of thinking about it is ways of working that are explicitly directly bridging these the auto and the theory that are shuttling between one's life, one's self as it is, you know, as one's life as they're living it in a certain body, in a, in a given time and place on a certain land in relationship to others in their lives, other texts that they're reading, other ideas, research. So I think the most obvious example that is cited is Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, because that's quite literally this queer feminist memoiristic text. One thing I'll notice that a lot of auto-theoretical writers are actually rejecting the term memoir. And I'd actually be curious to talk with, hear Mackenzie's thoughts on that too. But it seems like there's a distancing from traditional conceptions of memoir in favor for this term auto-theory. And so that was something I was really curious about. You know, what is it about this term theory that perhaps makes the turn to one's own self in life seem maybe intellectually valid or more critically relevant and resonant than traditional memoiristic modes? So yeah, with Maggie Nelson's book, you have the memoir and then quite literally in the margins, 
the citing of names of theorists and philosophers. And so I think when readers were able to see that really direct shuttling between auto and theory in a text, that around 2015, that's when this this term really started to take off and, and um, it seemed like a, a whole subset of readers and writers were really excited about by that mode. Yeah, I, I really like that about the book, actually, because it's this genealogy I didn't really expect from coming from what you would think more of as art practices, some of which had texts in them and, and some didn't, but all of which engaged with that auto as, as kind of uh, the thing that turns back on itself, maybe. I think a bit of automatic writing in a way as well. The thing that particularizes to a particular kind of body and its situation. And then theory, you know, which to me is the production of concepts. So, you know, in the era of the kind of collapse of the, the grand narratives, maybe that kind of return being marked subjects and not sort of, uh, I mean, I loved all those post-structuralist theory books back in the day, you know, they're all about like, you know, difference and repetition and, uh, and so forth, but they're all like written from on high by these like white guys who all went to the same, <laughs> you know, elite French university. And I'm like, what's the disconnect here? And, and then sort of you find these other lineages, some of which interact with that. Um, but to sort of use sort of feminist art practice stuff, I thought was, was really interesting. And obviously there can be multiple genealogies. It just wasn't one I, I thought of. I thought of more through sort of like queer stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of versions of African-American literature wanting to be conceptual. You know, you could find these other versions of it. And I think it's great to have this one as, as one of the ways to think it. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I was interesting because this work actually emerged first from my doctoral work. And I am indebted to my supervisor, Marcus Boone, who was thinking a lot about practice and, and him and Gabe Levine put together the practice reader through Whitechapel and MIT, actually. But thinking less about auto theory as a genre and more as a practice felt like a good way for me to start thinking in a way because this, this mode of practice is so emergent and kind of nascent in the culture. It felt like instead of I was less interested in defining it specifically as a, like a rigid genre and more as like a thing that artists and writers and critics and, and activists and others seem to be gravitating towards. And Mackenzie, I think you're certainly right around, you know, some critics were calling out folks who were saying that the Argonauts was a new genre, for example, saying like, you know, actually, Gloria Ian Saldoa with Borderlands, La Frontera was was doing something like that back in 1984, and that there is this whole lineage of of writings by by feminists and primarily by women of color who were who were working in this mode that was shuttling between the personal, the political, but also the the personal as philosophical. So that was I took that as one kind of provocation in a way and mm-hmm. and and thinking about performance art practices like Adrian Piper's Food for the Spirit. It was funny, I was actually in London on a research trip and I was mainly reading Freud in the British Library and actually trying to think through, (laughs) as you do, and trying to think through the gendered politics of narcissism because that was actually one, kind of one of the first questions I felt like I had to address with auto theory was, you know, how do we unpack in a critical way the politics of of that term to the self and of of the the self-reflection. And I felt like when I was reading, when I was reading Freud, something that really struck me was the way that narcissism is very much feminized and seen as inherently uncritical, inherently petty. And, and so, yeah. And, and, but it was funny because then I took a break and went to the Tate Modern and was walking through a group exhibition called performing something along the lines of performing for the camera, performing the self and Adrian Piper's food for the spirit was on view. And this is the, the first chapter that I opened with in the book, but, but essentially it's a, it's a work where she, committed to reading Kant's critique of pure reason over the course of a summer in her studio while fasting, but then found that 
in order to, as she put it, prove to herself that she still exists after this disembodying experience of, of being so immersed in Kant's philosophy, she found herself turning toward the mirror with her camera and taking these yeah. essentially proto-selfies. So I was kind of like, you know, that turn already, that actually feels auto-theoretical and like, where else can we see that impulse in, in our practices? So that was really the work that, that prompted that line of thinking. I mean, there's something heroic about the memoir and, and or, or kind of adorable also in that it, it thinks the self is knowable. <laughs> Uh, whereas I think after Freud, that's sort of what we learned is, is like we actually don't have a direct knowledge of the self at all. Like we have, you know, sort of misrecognitions, infections. And I, I think of auto theory as, among other things, post-Freudian in that sense. And in that, you know, like the self's just really not available to certain kinds of writing that you would then make truth claims about. So, yeah, like the, the reasons auto, auto theory kind of happened in, and, and in parallel with auto fiction, which is probably worth mention as well. So you can take this in, in a more a direction that's more about kind of sensation and affect, and then if you add a conceptual layer to it, I think you've got more of a auto theory sort of trajectory. But it's interesting that those developments have happened in parallel in a kind of literary intellectual world to deal with. All right, so we don't have the the grand narratives anymore. The the self's you know opaque to itself. And we're like drowning in information and a good concept makes a lot of information go away and reduces it to something manageable. So there's, there's a way in which it's kind of a genre that had to happen. But I think you're right. It's better to say it's a practice, yeah, because the results can be very different and even in different media. And even to think practices rather than genres is probably helpful. Yeah. And Mackenzie, I'd be curious, as you're describing that, you know, after the memoir, after Freud, how do we think about writing the self? Your your book, Reverse Cowgirl, comes to mind. And I'm curious, it certainly seems like that's the approach you took to writing through your own life. Yeah. And it, and it, and it owes a lot to maybe slightly different auto theory precedents. And the other thing is you, you sort of name the precedents as you call these things into being. Mm-hmm. And, and also to auto-fiction to, uh, you know, Colette and Duras and uh, Genet and like those to me were, and, and there's, there's all like little snippets of all of those. New narrative, I think, was trying to figure this out as well. You know, how do you talk about, you know, like daily pleasures and uh, struggles, but then also get your reading of George Bataille connected to that, you know. So, yeah, in Reverse Calgary, I was sort of working sort of working that vein a little bit. And, and of course, I'd, I straight up stole technical ideas from Maggie Nelson. <laughs> but i got to say that that book's controversial with trans readers because it's sort of, it's the cis woman kind of, is, is she trading on the trans partner's pain? And, you know, it, like, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of trans readers. Uh, even, even I admire it's at the level of the sentence and, and other sort of forms of formal construction in it. So there's, there's ways in which the auto-theoretical doesn't solve certain problems at all. It just sort of displaces them into a different practice. It's true. And I, I'm glad you raised that because I think I do take it briefly in, in my book, but the relationship between the auto theorists writing their own self in relation to others, you know, I think some critics have been a little bit more utopic and saying like, oh, you know, they're, they're forming these citational communities and, and Maggie Nelson's recognizing Harry Dodge as legitimate source in the margins next to Preciado and, and, and Freud and whoever. But there's that moment when Maggie Nelson actually like addresses Harry's discomfort at her writing about him. And, and it's kind of like, well, 
but and yet she still persists and is sort of like, well, this is my story and, and I have the right to tell my story. And that tension we see in Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, or uh, sorry, Alison Bechtel's Are You My Mother, when she's talking about her mother's discomfort with her writing about their relationship. And I feel like the the politics of, you know, whose story is mine to tell and, and how, and can you, t- you tell someone else's story from your lived perspective in relation with them is is a thorny question in a lot of these texts and I think with with the Argonauts that yes it's rightly come under under fire from from trans communities yeah, so. and it's it's sort of not resolvable in a, a literary culture that's essentially part of like capitalism where you're you're basically making claims to ownership in a story is the whole basis of writing as a commercial enterprise so it's it's kind of like whatever you do within the text is, is sort of up against the larger formal structure of, you know, the literary marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, Harry Dodge has his own book and it reproduces a bit of Argonauts in it as well. So there's, there's like a weird little ripple in that. And it, totally, it's a yeah. really interesting trippy book with, with like way too much name dropping for my table. <laughs> but apart from that, it's like super interesting counterpoint. Uh, to tell a different story and and doesn't really deal with trans stuff at all. It's about being an artist. Yeah, and that's my meteorite, I, I believe. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, well, it's funny the mention of, Mackenzie, your mention of the, the name dropping and the kind of the insular nature of some of these communities that it, it's interesting to look at who who is being cited in these texts. And oftentimes there is that element of self-reflexivity within a given community. And I've come to understand, like I've come to terms with the feeling like, okay, maybe this is just, the nature of any art movement, any creative movement, that, that there's like that level of recognition of others who've been innovating in those forms. And yet I am aware of the ways that that then can become its own sort of insular autonomous literary thing. So yeah, I think that that was another reason why I was a, I was interested in looking at other other media and, and points of reference. Because I think, you know, video artists who are working auto-theoretically tend to have a different range of, of reference points than, than the writer's. Yeah, and and to me that was that was really important in thinking about Janae's books are about people who don't even get to live, let alone write books. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of that even in um, new narrative. You know, there are people who didn't didn't live long enough to write their own books, or who really deserve to be characters but would never get to be in you know like cishet bourgeois novels at all because they weren't people who are recognisable. So I think that would be the counterpoint to the whole thing about ownership of story and so forth is, you know, like there are versions of this literature made certain things at least circulatable. Definitely. I know that you, you reference Serge Dubrovsky too in, in your work. And I, I think of, of his, I think he's actually credited as coining autofiction as a, like a formalized term in that French autofictional tradition, but, but his work with writing around his relationship with Foucault. And I feel like I, I'm really interested in Dubrovsky's work as this kind of intersection point between auto theory and auto fiction. Yeah, he really deserves to be better known in the Anglophone world. I don't think there's any books in English, are there? I, I don't even know. Uh, That's a good to... question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he is, he is credited with this, this sort of paradoxical formulation of, you know, it's like, it's like fiction, but where the author is really present in the text. And I think that's kind of an interesting sort of position to take in the sense that, and, and, and it kind of works for me too, is like I'm here in my text, so these stories are on me, you know, I'm accountable for them, but I'm making no claims to their truth value. I could have made some of this shit up and kind of had to because Australia's somewhat vicious libel laws, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, besides other reasons that like some people are really entitled to have their stories not told. Mm-hmm. So, so to have the 
the option to do that. And there's interesting precedents for that, like Charles Mingus's Beneath the Underdog is, I think, really underappreciated as, as autofiction, maybe even auto theory, or Diane DePrima's Memoirs of a Beatnik. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like tongue in cheek. She did not have sex with all these people in exactly this manner, you know, but it's like it's her in the text kind of thing, constructing this, this fictional view of, you know, beatnik life. Yeah, well, and I think that idea of like these bourgeois lines dividing, you know, what is what is appropriate, what is proper, like whose stories can be told and, and how, like there's certain other figures that crop up earlier on, like in, in this history of auto theory, like even the Baroness also of on Freitag Loringhoven, like data artists. And I was really interested in, in Amelia Jones's take up of her as like this lost data artist because she was actually literally embodying the data philosophy in practice and, and was seen as this kind of horrific abject figure by the male by the male data artists who were canonized and whom Amelia Jones describes as like living their otherwise bourgeois lives, like when they weren't making their art. And I feel like that's something else that I really find interesting with these auto theoretical ways of working is, is really blurring the lines between art and life, critical, creative, public, private, obviously, but also the self in relationship to one's, one's work, which I think also gets really complicated when it comes to the politics of cancel culture today. And I feel like when I was, First in school, back in undergrad, the idea of even talking about a philosopher or a, a writer's life in a class on their work wasn't part of the conversation at all. And, and now it feels like the pendulum swung. And, and if someone has, you know, a politically fraught life, our willingness to take up their work, I think, especially by younger generations, is, is more charged. Yeah, you know, because I was, I was part of that like 80s generation where it's just the text, you know, it's like it's not, it's not readable back to the intention of the author and I still abide by that. But I think it is readable back into the situation in which the author was enmeshed and we're a little bit captive to that thing that I think you can now read a little differently that Foucault was doing in the archaeology, which is, you know, I write in order to have no face, you know, to push into the dark passages and into, into the unknown, leave it to the police to see that our papers are in order. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, yeah, I get that, you know, like this desubjectivization. But also, honey, you're talking about cruising. Like it's the most personal thing you ever write. <laughs> it's about <laughs> writing unpersonally. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. literature holes. It's like, honey, I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <in there. laughs> yeah. So there's, I think there's ways you can sort of rethink what was going on with that. And of course, he has several of his boyfriends wrote what got treated as Roman Aklef about him, but they're maybe better thought of as auto fiction, auto theory. Uh, Hershey Bear wrote a, a nice book about him. Yeah. We're, we're finally going to get, like, you know, thank you, MIT Press, uh, Guillaume Dostin is going to come out, oh, yeah. the first three books in English. Fantastic. And to me, that's, that's like the root of autofiction. And, it, and it, you know, I'm, it's not my life, you know, but how do you narrate the life of a, a gay man who cruises? Like, it just doesn't fit in the bourgeois novel. You know, like, you make gay men characters in bourgeois novels by giving them property and long-term partners and, you know, like, white-collar jobs and all that bullshit that bourgeois literature is about but these lives fall out of that yeah like they don't really have a place and it, but it seems to me that like a lot more people even like straight and cis people kind of live like that now yeah like who has like the house in the country and yeah who even gets to own their own fucking apartment if you're under 30 yeah and and like 
everybody cruises. That's what like dating apps gave to the straight world. So there's kind of a way in which some of these forms, I think, speak to readers for whom the, the bourgeois novel sort of maybe on its last legs a little bit as a form because the life it corresponds to becomes like utopian, like a fantasy, you know. Definitely. And it seems like, yeah, the politics, just the relationship between housing and, and sex right now is really complicated in light of, of COVID. And, and yeah, like, I feel like I'm, I'm so interested right now too in, in working class, you know, mm. politics. And, and I, I think of some of the radical, some of the life stories of, of the really abjected radical feminists like Andrea Dworkin and people who I, I don't necessarily agree with, but who died in, in, in really like dismal impoverished conditions and I think of stories of of yeah some of these kind of like outlier feminist figures too and queer figures who whose lives weren't necessarily told because of class or because of poverty and because of you know structural racism like all these different things that get in the way of of as you say the bourgeois novel yeah or, or you know Saint Simone's book on uh, being on the on the on the assembly line you know she wrote a book about factory work that no one knows how to classify uh, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's auto theory. Yeah. Cause it's, it's sort of not like, it's not, you know, from the point of view of the worker, cause she's not, it's not theory, you know, from on above cause she's like present in it all the time. Yeah. I think there's books we can kind of like reconnect to. Yeah. Including, and you gotta admit, Andrew Dworkin kind of could really turn a sentence, you know, like she kind of wrote well and there's experiences in those books. Uh, even if, yeah, the anti-sex work thing is a bit of a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but are there ways you could get other things out of it? Or, That's um, true. It's like, it seems like... Airless spaces, you know, like the occasional pieces she wrote. Uh, yeah, there'd be another example. Sorry, I was cutting you off there. No, I was... It seems like it ties into your point earlier about, you know, maybe we can take certain formal devices or, you know, experimental innovations from folks without rejecting their work outright, which I do think has happened with figures like Dworkin. But it's interesting to your point about Foucault and, and earlier your point about philosophy being written by these white men who've at least pretended to be doing something from on high and not from an embodied place. And I feel like something I do address in the book is the ways that actually this auto-theoretical impulse, while really rooted in, in feminist traditions and, and queer traditions, bubbles up all through the history of philosophy and, and certainly essayistic writing traditions. I mean, going back to Montaigne and earliest roots of the essay, I think from its start has always been a, a form rooted in the eye and looking to using one's embodied perspective as a way into to theorizing all kinds of, of aesthetic, political, social issues. And I, I think in the book, I'm trying to look at even the auto-theoretical tendencies within Freud, within Nietzsche, within Derrida, like these are kind of cropping up. And something I really love about Chris Krause's I Love Dick actually is the way that she, in a very deliciously cheeky way, is takes that disingenuous fictionalization and like it's like, okay, there's a character Chris Krause, you know, and the character Sylvain Latranger. And but then it's like, well, no, this is very much well, I, I guess I can't be speaking for her, but my understanding as a reader is that this is grounded in, you know the life as lived that it's not really being fictionalized but you know maybe yeah. because of libel maybe because of these other reasons but then her point about you know so much of literature by white european men is this as she puts it thinly veiled story of me in all caps and i really love that because i think it shows the ways that auto theory as a term that's kind of trending right now is in a lot of ways really just crystallizing and and embracing this tendency that arguably runs through the work of maybe all writers, I don't know, to some extent. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's sort of I want to embrace this and and also be a little take some distance from its uh, commercialization as well. Like there's there's a way in which everything that's you know sort of like anything vaguely memoiry by millennial white girls is now called autofiction or auto theory or something, and it's and the books don't often really live up to that. Of course, people should still get to write them and whatever, but the, you know, the books that actually sustain you know, larger claims about them are a little bit rarer than that. Mm-hmm. And we all know it was Dick Hepburn, just the Dick and I love Dick, right? And, and reportedly was very unhappy about it. And I kind of see why. Nobody likes to be subject to that level of scrutiny. But that, that sort of turning the, turning the gaze back was a thing that that book really enabled, uh, mostly for good, although maybe there's some versions of that we could have, could have done without, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still a, a Chris Krause fan. She's fallen out of favour a little bit, I find, but mm-hmm. yeah, that book really enabling. Actually, the thing about about Chris's writing is, yeah, there's like you know, there's like sex in the books. The things that's really upfront about is money. Yeah, like the like she talks about money, and that's that's mm-hmm. the real taboo. You know, like nobody does. I didn't do that either in in uh, Reverse Cowgirl. I'm trying in the next one. But it's like, oh yeah, how do you write about the money part? <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot hard, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's such a good point. Yeah, it's interesting. And that's more vulnerable, you know, than the most like explicit sex acts that <laughs> to, to disclose a truth yeah. about money. Pages and pages about us. <laughs> it really wasn't hard. But money, like that's actually really hard to kind of uh, to put on the page in any way that's not, you know, just embarrassingly disingenuous or moralizing or, because the, the truth of, of literature is it's mostly a middle-class pursuit, yeah? And to be middle-class is boring, <laughs> kind of by definition. Well, one thing I love about I Love Dick is the way that I think something that really strikes me about it is how Chris Krauss takes up the politics of who gets to be considered an intellectual and also the power of that. And, and I think really allegorizes that in a hyperbolic comedic way through these, this gender binary of like the female reduced to the body, the man elevated to the mind and, and think about the heterosexual politics actually in a kind of queer way. Um, and so I, your point that there's all these books coming out that, is is every selfie is every memoir can can you tag on this term auto theory i think it's a, a really valid and important point i'm currently working on editing a, a special issue of this of this asap journal association for the study of the arts of the present with my colleague alex brostoff and one thing we've been thinking about is as we're editing other folks's work on auto theory it's like like how how do we establish a working parameter and framework that's flexible enough to be inclusive and to be open to the directions that this practice is going to take while also making some limits you know because because i don't think that every memoir can maybe properly call itself auto theory, but, but it, it is a slippery question. And I feel like in the book, I've tried to lay out some, some parameters for, you know, what constitutes auto theory, but I do think in a more generative sense that what some of these texts are doing is raising the question of what constitutes philosophy, what constitutes theory, you know, who gets to occupy these roles and who gets to say what they're doing is a practice of, of philosophizing. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you, sort of raised it as practice rather than genre because I hadn't actually even, I hadn't really thought that through, but it just so, it makes so much sense to me. But then, like, you do want to ask, like, what's interesting about the practice of the writer before you even get to other sentences or paragraphs interesting or whatever, you know? 
So it's like, yeah, what, what is the daily life you're engaged in, which need not be sort of spectacular and romantic or anything like that, you know, like, like, um, Pessoa's, um, uh, texts, like that's, that's already, you know, auto fiction, but all Pessoa ever did was go to work, uh, sit in cafes and write, like that's the entire life. You can see maps of, uh, you know, Book of Disquiet of where it was written. And it's like, you know, about 10 blocks in Lisbon. That's his entire freaking life. It's on one level incredibly boring. But every little bit of it he's able to observe and, and flip around into a concept, yeah? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that's, it's, it's not that you're, you know, you're an explorer or, or, or anything like that. It's just the way you're able to connect writing to a practice of the everyday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's maybe for me would be the, the criteria that I'm looking for. It's like, do you have a way of, of sort of perceiving, but then also sort of gathering that and, and turning that into a concept that's maybe a little unexpected, you know, like a, a good concept. It's, I always say this, like a, a good fact is mostly true, but about something in particular, a good concept is slightly true, but about a lot of things. So, mm. so I think it's a practice that sort of is oscillating between those things in a way that can be a little self-correcting, where like a concept of concepts are emerging, which for me, and for me, they do that in, in I Love Dick. Yeah. You, you get some concepts about what, uh, what desire is, uh, what would it mean for a straight woman to practice her sexuality with the same pride that gay men do? Like that's one of the things that asks uh, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, this gives you a whole other perspective on these actually fairly banal, you know, kind of uh, ordinary, uh, everyday kinds of sexuality going, going on in it. And this gets us away also from things like queer theories validating of, of only the sort of extreme and fantastic experience matters. It's like, uh, how, do we, how do we be conceptual about the mundane? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, auto theory is so indebted to queer affect theory, queer feminist affect theory. I know you mentioned affect early on in this conversation, like taking a queer phenomenology, Sarah Ahmed, like I think, yeah, taking seriously that every day as, as a site for the generating of concepts. Yeah, no, I love that, that working definition for sure. I feel like also another way I've been thinking about it is you've mentioned a few times the importance of the text. And I think that with auto theory, it's almost like what writers need to remember is once I think Alison Bechtel actually says this too, like once you're putting your work out in the world and maybe framing it as auto theory, well, okay, your life in a sense is becoming a text and it's open to critique. And I think that that actually can make some people really uncomfortable. It's sort of similar to, I teach art students and it's like an art school, like in the critique, you know, like if you're working with personal material, then that's being embroiled in like what's up for critique. And then that Mm -hmm. starts to you know, make some folks really uncomfortable because the treatment of their life is becoming a text. And But I think the, the importance of reflection and critical reflection can't go understated right now. I feel like we're in such a culture of reaction that having some some more, you know, reflection on the self and one's life and the ethics and the politics of one's life. Maybe I'm a little bit optimistic, but I feel like auto theory has potential for writers to take that seriously as a philosophical practice and, a, and an ethical practice. Yeah, well, I, I want to make that a little, like, even dialectical in a sense. Like, kind of where is the space for young people to make relatively non-consequential mistakes through thoughtlessness? Like, where do you even get to do that? Now, obviously, there are things that you would not want to, to go wrong. Yeah, like, where, where is the environment where you could, you know, like, like lose yourself a little bit? 
without having to sort of like second guess whether you've like, you know, followed all of the rules and so on. And maybe there's a kind of obsessive inward turning policing of rules. It's not really self-reflection. It's more whether you sort of like ticked off certain uh, habits rather than whether you thought about them at all. So, yeah, it's like separating a few things like, like that out, yeah. Because it's kind of like, I don't know, like I only, you know, <laughs> I'm nearly 60. I kind of just see it through my students. It just, it really sucks to be young at the moment. Uh, you know, like the, the media landscape, the sort of like devastation of any possibility of middle-class urban life and the fact that the planet's dying, like all conspires to make that deeply unpleasant. So, you know, yeah. there's a literature that sort of, exists in that, you know, impossibility of, of the old forms, you know, really not an accident at all. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. It, it seems like there's certainly no, no public place to, to be making right. mistakes right now. <laughs> and I, I credit Anne Boyer for this 100%. I, I mentioned this in the book too, but she, she, she's been thinking about, we're at the auto conference at the Royal College of Art last spring and just over lunch, she was talking um, with Joanna Walsh, actually, who wrote a similarly auto-theoretical book through semi-text. But Anne Boyer was talking about essentially this this tension between Gen X, which she identified with as being almost amoral and anti-moral, and then the millennials as being just so hyper-moral. And it's it's absolutely true. I feel like I'm like in the middle space where we're we definitely had the room to like fuck up, but and it wasn't exactly in public. It was like the tech, the social media tech was like um, you know, still in development, and yet, yeah, we're kind of caught in that liminal space between. So I think you're absolutely right. There is this kind of hyper-morality that that's also um you know, I think it, it, it's all part of this this hyper polarized, discursive world that we're living in right now. Yeah, and, but maybe with at least some sense of accountability, which maybe did not exist in eras that I would also have passed through. So, I, yeah, I, I don't want to sort of talk about it like it's, it was the good old days or anything. But it, what, is there a way to sort of make a synthesis of some of those different values? And then, in a sense, maybe that's one of the little tasks this kind of writing is is sort of tooling around with. Yeah. It's like, ah, uh, you know, like, yeah, we sort of get the political objectives here, but some of these means to achieve them just don't work. You know, like the cop in your head, you know, sort of going off about everybody's or behavior is, is part of carceral logic, you know, like that's mm-hmm. not a solution. So, yeah, how do, how do we sort of get out of that without giving up on the fact that, yeah, like, you know, sexism is real, like we live in a class society, which is fundamentally racist, you know, how do we hold on to the truth of that, but find better tools and, and literature is a thing for doing that, yeah, for opening up experimental spaces for playing around these things. Yeah, I would echo that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, like I tell you, like, I think uh, I'm, I'm getting this from a different context from somebody called Eric Michaels, like we really have to have a working definition of what bad auto theory is. Like, I, I think the, the success of it of a genre, and without being, without lapsing into parody and, and being patronising in all those ways it's usually dealt with, I think we need our own independent sense of, yeah, okay, I, I'm, I'm with you, sometimes this stuff's bad, but here are reasons why I think we could say this isn't good work. Uh, and I think as a set of practices, it'll be really enabled to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, one idea that comes to mind, I feel like could be contentious, but I guess maybe like a lazy approach to like a kind of superficial placing of, of the self next to theory without really engaging with both as, as substantive 
materials. I mean, I think at its worst, there's this one sort of auto-theoretical trend that we're seeing is is like selfies with theory books. I, I take this up in the book as well and, and thinking about like the ways that forms communities. So I actually love like topless theory reading, for example, <laughs> which is um, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Um, she's based in Spain and Berlin, but it started quite organically between her and an artist that she was curating. And then it's like, let's take topless theory reading, but then it, it organizes as a hashtag. It's a way for people to share, you know, the books that they're reading, not always theory books, but they tend to be part of a certain kind of scenes, maybe some like speculative fiction in there and, and, um, and queer theory and feminist theory. But I, I think that the bad form of auto theory would be like not reading the book or like it, it just becomes this fetishized object. And I think that that's something that I've seen a little bit of, not in that project, but elsewhere. And and that, that makes me worry that that theory can just become a fetish object, uh, you know, that we forget the importance of reading as a practice, the importance of, of, you know, actually being immersed in a text and, and thinking through it. One of the reasons that prompted me to choose the uh, cover image for the book, it's by the Iranian-Canadian artist Sona Safai. And it's um, this fantastic, I think it's fantastic. It's this pattern that she's been playing with for a while, but it's in the form of the Louis Vuitton bag. But it's, you know, the theorist names as logos in this brandscape. And so you have like the Deleuze and Guattari and, and even also different artists. That she, she essentially took the um, theorists and the artists that she was primarily told to read when she was in art school. And so you have like Andrea Fraser in there and um, Nicholas Burio and, I liked that tension around the neoliberal politics of auto theory, because I do think that there's certain risks that we run in, as you've noted, you know, the commodification of the memoir, but also the commodification of intellectual references as a form of cultural capital. And so I feel like that would be another kind of bad version of auto theory. Yeah. And, you know, personally, I always like to to think of the distinction between low theory and high theory as having like a class dimension to it you know like there, there is a kind of high theory world that you kind of need you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of american graduate school education to kind of understand what the conversation even is you know, which kind of becomes a prestige object in itself and a sort of our object like its uselessness is its value whereas i think low theory is just much more about how do you survive your life uh and it's a tradition i've always been much much more interested in uh, which would include things like uh, Angela Davis's autobiography of, of her time in prison, yeah, uh, is auto theory because it's sort of about how to survive that. But it's it's where she has the least to say about German critical theory because you know, it just, mm-hmm. you know, to the conceptual challenge of, of what was happening to her, yeah. Yeah, so there, there is a kind of, um, there's a, like, there's a gentrification of auto theory going on as well, yeah. Uh, I'm not super keen on and it then tends to land on certain fixed points of reference. I mean, it seemed really exciting in the 80s to talk about Foucault and Deleuze and whatever. People are still talking about the same theorists, right? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe that some of those things endure and become classics, but really, you know, like, like what happened since? Uh, they, they sort of accumulate prestige as names to cite. Yeah, so I think maybe that's another thing I start thinking about is reflecting a little bit more critically on the like class dimension in that sense of cultural capital as well, yeah, that's kind of going on in a literature that maybe is sometimes becoming a way of signifying uh, a certain kind of class belonging. No, I, I, was, I was handed Foucault by self-described nasty street queens 
in like handmade Xerox copies of, you know, pirate translations, you know, like it meant something completely different. It wasn't a thing you studied in grad school at all. Uh, and it's different bits of Foucault. It's the bits that would help you navigate uh, what it meant to be policed and policed by the, you know, psychiatric institutions as well and so forth. So, yeah, to me, it's for, for uh, auto theory to be low auto theory kind of matters as well. I think that's where it's more interesting. Yeah, well, it seems like one of the, the distinctions there too is between, you know, referencing something for the sake that, like, mm-hmm. I, I know what Deleuze and Guattari's rhizomes means versus referencing something of, like, I've absorbed, as you've said, like Foucault's critique of, of um, psychiatric institutionalization, and I'm able to enact that in my understanding of the world and how I share this knowledge with others. And I think your example of Angela Davis's autobiography as well, like it's, it's like the distinction there is the absorption and, and kind of transmuting, metabolizing of, of these ideas and concepts through, through your, your lived experience and through your body instead of just, you know, referencing for the sake of, of showing off some, some kind of intellectual credibility yeah, there's some not great examples that I won't mention that some of which have the same references as Maggie Nelson's book. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> we could ah. move along here. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. like I find that with teaching too. It's, it's hard to get people to take the risk of sort of discovering other literatures and that don't have value associated with them already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, Shannon Bell's a performance artist I've worked with and, and, sh- and political thinker, and she talks about this like, the importance of oblique, like unexpected connections. So when, when she's thinking about her kind of radical feminist female ejaculation practice through Paul Virilio and, and like, she's just like, I want to like, she's like, I want to make, I mean, maybe that's not super oblique of a connection, but it's almost like it is more interesting to me to have unexpected citations too. Like, I think, I think you're right that we've, we've, you know, established a certain working form of like present day auto theory, but now I think it's time to like expand beyond that and and look to more unexpected sites of of reference and knowledge as well. And I do feel like there's some really interesting work happening with a lot of indigenous contemporary writing too. I know Lindsay Nixon from well, indigenous from the colonized lands of so-called Canada, but their book thinking about their like Cree identity being raised on Treaty Four lands here, where I'm actually speaking to you today. And just yeah, there's a lot of interesting texts that have a whole different set of reference points that aren't that French post-structuralist tradition. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's like looking for, you know, yeah, what would be a sort of and, and it seems wrong to have like a lineage or anything like that. Yeah, there's there's a way in which the, the high theory world is all about a sort of apostolic succession of this person was trained by that person who was trained by that person. And, and there's sort of like the passing of a personal, you know, sort of investiture, you know, from one person to another through, you know, great institutions. But yeah, I'm more interested in where does theory spontaneously occur outside of institutional frameworks. And it's so striking how much of the stuff you're supposed to read within an institutional framework actually happened that way. Yeah. Like Marx was not a philosopher. Spinoza was not a philosopher. Yeah. Like Marx was a journalist. Spinoza was a lens grinder. Like they were trying to produce concepts for a struggle in life uh, that was all around them at that particular time. And I kind of think, you know, like, quite frankly, the universities are like crumbling around us at the moment. So you can't sort of rely on it as the space where conceptual work gets to happen. So how can you see ways it's learnable and teachable through everyday life without becoming totally kind of like crazy and ungoverned? You know, like it has some sense of error correction. That to me is like a real 
you know, like struggle, like there's just a struggle to be able to produce knowledge that enables people to navigate their lives uh, without falling into crazy conspiracy theories or depression or, you know, any of the sort of like many things that lie in wait that you frankly get very little training in how to deal with other than people trying to sell your products for it, you know. So, yeah, to me, it's these, these books have a real purpose in the world. I'd just like to say thank you again to Mackenzie and Lauren, as well as thanking Samantha Doyle, who mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galeno, who provided the soundtrack. Just a reminder that we'll be publishing an extended version of this conversation next week on the podcast, and a transcript of the discussion on the website shortly after.